From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Sometimes my Australian colleague, Sarah McVie, will teach us Australian words and phrases. And recently she shared a particularly good one, which is frothing. To froth is to lose your mind with enthusiasm. Frothing means completely freaking out, but in a good way. I think it has to do with surfing somehow. Anyway, if you want to see frothing in action, just watch what happens whenever Taffy Brodesser Ackner publishes a story in the New York Times. That's where she's profiled people like Gwyneth Paltrow, Tanya Harding, and Jonathan Franzen. And sure, people read those pieces for the big names, but they also read them for Taffy. She's able to make even people you suspect might not actually be that interesting seem interesting, at least for the length of a profile. Her subjects become characters in the irresistible drama of being famous. So maybe it's no surprise that Taffy has now turned to fiction. She's just published her first novel, Fleischman is in Trouble. And maybe because people are so used to frothing over Taffy's journalism, reading her writing about made-up characters requires a slight mental adjustment. For example, Taffy's book is about the miserable, painful dissolution of a marriage. Taffy, meanwhile, is very happily married. Someone casually said to my husband, is it okay with you that she's writing a book about the divorce? Like so many other people, their first novel is a coming-of-age novel. And he said, she's obsessed with divorce. She has always been obsessed with divorce. Her whole family is divorced. Some of them are divorced twice. Like, this is it. This has nothing to do with me. Like her husband said, divorce is a topic Taffy's been thinking about for a long time, ever since her parents split up, back when she was six. What do you remember thinking about that at the time that it was happening? I mean, I remember being very excited that we were going to have two new houses, which makes me feel very stupid. <laughs> oh, I was like, oh, look at that, two, two birthday parties. Um, but as I grew older, the thing I was thinking about was, was, was it worth it? However they felt about each other, was it worth it to disrupt our lives in this way? And thankfully, they have done a thing where they have so much animosity between themselves that they still can't be in a room together, oh, which, wow. which makes it very hard for us to have a bar mitzvah. How or, many years later is this now? I was six, and I'm 43 now. Wow. It's a lot of years later. But at least I think when I see them fighting at my child's birthday party or what have you, I think... You know, at least they didn't do it for nothing. They really couldn't be in a room together anymore. Yeah. And then I and now this this year I married for 13 years and that's the year that they broke up. Thank you. That's the year that they broke up. And I think these questions of like you know, um do you have children? I don't have children. So like when you're pregnant you're like told not to really take it to the bank till you're in the second trimester and you can tell people. <laughs> yeah. And then you're like in the second trimester and you're like, but nobody could tell I'm pregnant yet. So am I really pregnant? Yeah. And that's how my marriage has been. I'm like, mm. am I really married? And I and I feel like only now do I realize that I didn't think I was really married until I made it through this looking glass that my parents inadvertently set up. Oh, that's up. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, that's like the first trimester yeah. of your married I'm like, life. I'm like, we are now, now that we're, and I was thinking now that we're good, can I talk about marriage? And what was crazy to me was that I actually just wanted to talk about divorce. Yeah. Just as Taffy was finally feeling married, she noticed something happening all around her. All of a sudden, 
it felt like everyone was getting divorced. And now, it wasn't her parents' generation. It was hers. These were her friends, people whose weddings she'd been to. You know, I was raised in a Jewish community, and I went to a Jewish high school. And I spent a year abroad in Israel. And I, a lot of my friends, you know, they got married. And and a thing that rabbis often say under a chuppah is they say, we are all responsible for this marriage. And my first thought sometimes was always like, did I, did I fall down on this job? <laughs> if it's your responsibility to newly married friends to help support their marriage, then what's your responsibility to the newly divorced? You might start by trying to wrap your mind around their bewildering lives as suddenly single people. The 40-somethings Taffy knew were having their first experiences on the apps. They were overwhelmed, and Taffy was fascinated. She wanted to do some research. So first, she created a dummy account, posting as a woman somewhat like herself. And what she got, you'll be shocked to hear, was a flood of dick pics. And then I went on as a man. And the men have it so good. What did you use as a pick for the men? I used just a man pick. Or as a man. A, a man pick. Just I a used, generic. I, I interneted a man pick. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, this is Google what... picture of man. <laughs> <laughs> what do men look yeah. like these days? <laughs> and, uh, and like all of these women were so interested in getting to know me. And they wanted to know which investment bank I worked at. You know, because I was going to be an amazing man. I was going to be yeah, an wait, Upper East Side you as a man. man. Yeah. I was an Upper East Side man. <laughs> so I was an investment banker. <laughs> After a few days, though, being immersed in that ocean of sexual desire was too much. She couldn't take it anymore. I was like, enough research. <laughs> enough. <laughs> I can't stop uh, getting solicited research. for work anymore. Divorce as a topic was obviously promising. The only question was how Taffy was going to tackle it. What was it like to decide to do that through fiction as opposed to through I, a reported, you know, magazine piece or a I wanted book? to do this as a magazine piece. I really? wanted to I wanted I called my editor up and said all my friends are coming to me and telling me about their their um their new dating lives with their apps now that they're divorced and I want to do a story on either divorce or on like what it's like for somebody who is now being like dumped out into this new world. He said, I would love to read this somewhere, he said, but it's not going to be GQ, which is how he also, he always uh, very kindly turned me down. And I pulled over into a pan quotidian and I wrote the first 10 pages right there. So pull over at the nearest pan quotidian. Here's Taffy Brodus or Ackner reading the first pages of the book she started that day. Fleischman is in trouble. Toby Fleischman awoke one morning inside the city he'd lived in all his adult life and which was suddenly, somehow, now crawling with women who wanted him. Not just any women, but women who were self-actualized and independent and knew what they wanted. Women who weren't needy or insecure or self-doubting, like the long-ago prospects of his long-gone youth. No, these were women who were motivated and available and interesting and interested and exciting and excited. These were women who would not so much wait for you to call them one or two or three socially acceptable days after you met them, as much as send you pictures of their genitals the day before. Women who were open-minded and up for anything, and vocal about their desires and needs, and who used phrases like, put my cards on the table, and no strings attached, and I need to be done in ten because I have to pick up Bella from ballet. Women who would fuck you like they owed you money, was how his friend Seth put it. 
Yes, who would have predicted that Toby Fleischman, at the age of 41, would find that his phone was aglow from sun up to sundown, with texts that contained G-string and ass cleavage and underboob and side boob and just straight up boob, and all the parts of a woman he never dared dream he would encounter in a person who is three-dimensional, meaning literally three-dimensional, as in a person who wasn't on a page or a computer screen. All this after a youth filled with romantic rejection. All this after putting a lifetime bet on one woman. Who could have predicted this? Who could have predicted that there was such life in him yet? Still, it was jarring. Rachel was gone now, and her goneness was so incongruous to what had been his plan. It wasn't that he still wanted her. He absolutely did not want her. He absolutely did not wish she were still with him. It was that he had spent so long waiting out the fumes of the marriage, busying himself telling the kids, moving out, telling his colleagues, that he had not considered what life might be like on the other side of it. He understood divorce in a macro way, of course, but he had not yet adjusted to it in a micro way, in the other side of the bed being empty way, in the nobody to tell you you were running late way, in the you belong to no one way. How long was it before he could look at the pictures of women on his phone straight on, instead of out of the corner of his eye? Okay, sooner than he thought, but not immediately. Certainly not immediately. He hadn't looked at another woman once during his marriage. So in love with Rachel was he. So in love was he with any kind of institution or system. He made solemn, dutiful work of trying to save the relationship even after it would have been clear to any reasonable person that their misery was not a phase. There was nobility in the work, he believed. There was nobility in the suffering. And even after he realized that it was over, he still had to spend years, plural, trying to convince her that this wasn't right, that they were too unhappy, that they were still young and could have good lives without each other. Even then, he didn't let one millimeter of his eye wander, mostly because he was too busy being sad, mostly because he felt like garbage all the time, and a person shouldn't feel like garbage all the time. More than that, a person shouldn't be made horny when he felt like garbage. The intersection of horniness and low self-esteem seemed reserved squarely for porn consumption. But now there was no one to be faithful to. Rachel wasn't there. She was not in his bed. She was not in the bathroom, applying liquid eyeliner with the precision of a robot to the area where her eyelid met her eyelashes. She was not at the gym or coming back from the gym in a less black mood than usual. She was not up in the middle of the night, complaining about the infinite abyss of her endless insomnia. She was not at curriculum night at the kids' extremely private and yet somehow progressive school on the West Side, sitting in a small chair and listening to the new and greater demands that were being placed on their poor children compared to the prior year. So no, she was not there. She was in a completely other home, the one that used to be his too. Every single morning, this thought overwhelmed him momentarily. It panicked him, so that the first thing he thought when he awoke was this, something is wrong. There is trouble. I am in trouble. It had been he who asked for the divorce, and still, something is wrong. There is trouble. I am in trouble. Each morning he shook this off. He reminded himself that this was what was healthy and appropriate and the natural order. She wasn't supposed to be next to him anymore. She was supposed to be in her separate, nicer home. But she wasn't there either, not on this particular morning. He learned this when he leaned over to his new Ikea nightstand and picked up the phone, whose beating presence he felt even in those few minutes before his eyes officially opened. 
he had maybe seven or eight texts there, most of them from women who had reached out during the night via his dating app. But his eyes went straight to Rachel's text. It seemed to give off a different light than the ones that contained body parts and lacy bands of panty. It somehow drew his eyes in a way the others didn't. At 5 a.m., she'd written, I'm headed to Kripalu for the weekend. The kids are at your place, FYI. It took two readings to realize what that meant. And Toby, ignoring the erection he'd allowed to flourish, knowing that his phone was rife with new masturbation material, jumped out of bed. He ran into the hallway, and he saw that their two children were in their bedrooms, asleep. FYI, the kids were in there? FYI? FYI was an afterthought. FYI was supplementary. It wasn't essential. This information, that his children had been deposited into his home under the cover of darkness during an unscheduled time with the use of a key that had been supplied to Rachel in case of a true and dire emergency, seemed essential. He returned to his bedroom and called her. What were you thinking, he whisper hissed into the phone. Whisper hissing still did not come easily to him, but he was getting better at it every day. What if I'd gone out and not realized they were there? That's why I texted you, she said. Her response to whisper hissing was eye-rolling glibness. Did you bring them here after midnight, he asked? Because I went to sleep at midnight. I dropped them off at four, she said. I had been trying to get in for the weekend. There was a cancellation. The program starts at nine. Give me a break here, Toby. I'm having a hard time. I really need some me time. As if all her time weren't completely and totally her time. You can't pull this kind of shit, Rachel. He only said her name at the end of sentences now. Why? You had them this weekend anyway, she said. But not till tomorrow morning. Toby put his fingers to the bridge of his nose. The weekends begin Saturday. That was your rule, not mine. Did you have plans, she asked. What does that even mean? What if there had been a fire, Rachel? What if there had been an emergency with one of my patients and I ran out without knowing they were here? But you didn't, she said. I'm sorry, should I have woken you up and told you that they were there? He thought of her waking him up, how it could have been catastrophic to his progress in understanding that she was no longer part of his waking up. You shouldn't have done it at all, he said. How could she not see that this wasn't a small deal? He actually did have a date that night. He couldn't seem to convey to her that he was a real person, that he was not a blinking cursor awaiting her instructions that he still existed when she wasn't in a room with him. He couldn't understand what the goal of having all these agreements in place was if she wasn't even going to pretend to adhere to them or apologize when she didn't. He'd given her a key to his new apartment not to pull shit like this, but so that they could have something that was amicable. Did you ever notice that you only use the word amicable in relation to divorce? Was it because it was so often used for divorce that you didn't want to poison anything else with it? The way you could say malignant for things other than cancer, but you never did? The kids were stirring, and it was just as well, because his boner was gone. Coming up, Toby looks up from his phone and has an alarming encounter with an actual woman. Welcome back. This week, Taffy Brodesar Ackner is reading from her new book, Fleischman is in Trouble. When we left off, newly divorced Toby Fleischman was basking in the thrill of dating apps when he got a text from his ex wife, Rachel. 
She'd left unexpectedly for a yoga retreat. And that means Toby is now responsible for getting their two kids off to camp. Sally, his nine-year-old, woke up. But Hannah, who was 11, wanted to stay in bed. Sorry, kid, no dice, Toby told her. We have to be out the door in 20. They stumbled into the kitchen with unfocused eyes, and Toby had to muck around in their bags to find the clothing they were supposed to wear for camp that day. Hannah snarled at him that he'd chosen the wrong outfit, that the leggings were for tomorrow, and so he held up her tiny red shorts and she swiped them out of his hands with the disgust of a person who was not committed to any consideration of scale when it came to emotional display. Then she flared her nostrils and stiffened her lips and told him somehow without opening her teeth that she had wanted him to buy cornflakes, not corn checks. The subtext being, what kind of fucking idiot was she given for a father? Solly, on the other hand, ate his corn checks cheerfully. He closed his eyes and shook his head with pleasure. Hannah, he said, you have to try these. Toby was not above being grateful for Solly's sad show of solidarity. Solly understood. Solly knew. Solly was his in a way that never made him wonder if all of this had been worth it. He had Toby's same internal need for things to be okay. Solly wanted peace, just like his father. They even looked alike. They had the same dark blonde hair, the same brown eyes, though Solly's were slightly larger than Toby's and so gave the appearance of always being a little scared, and the same comma-shaped nose. Hannah was his, too except that she had Rachel's straight blonde hair and narrow blue eyes and sharp nose, her whole face an accusation, just like her mother's. She had a specific kind of sarcasm that was a characteristic of the Fleischmann side. At least she once did. Her parents' separation seemed to ignite in her a humorlessness and a fury that had already been coming, either because her parents fought too often and too viciously, or because she was becoming a teenager and her hormones created a rage within her or because she didn't have a phone and Lexi Leffer had a phone, or because she had a Facebook account she was only allowed to use on the computer in the living room, and she didn't even want that Facebook account because Facebook was for old people, or because Toby suggested that the sneakers that looked just like Keds but were $12 less were preferable to the Keds since, again, they were exactly the same just without the blue tag on the back, and what about being two overt victims of consumerism? Or because there was a sad popular song on the radio about a long-gone romance that meant a lot to her, and he had asked her to turn down her speakers while he was on the phone with the hospital. Or because later, when she explained why that sad popular song was so meaningful by making him listen to it, she seethed at him because he didn't appear to magically understand how a song could ignite in her a nostalgia that she couldn't possibly have had, never having had a boyfriend or because he wondered if her skirt was too short to sit down in, or because he wondered if her shorts were too short if they showed the crease between her buttocks and thighs and were even so short that their full pocket linings couldn't be contained by them and so extended beyond the short's hem. Or because he asked where her hairbrush was, which clearly implied to her that he thought her hair looked terrible, or because she did not want to see The Princess Bride or any of his old man movies or because he ran his hand across her head one day in a display of tenderness, ruining her very perfect middle part that had taken 10 minutes to get right, or because, no, she did not want to read The Princess Bride either or any of his old man books. Yes, her contempt for her parents, which seemed manageable when it was aimed at both Rachel and Toby, was absolutely devastating in its current concentration when it was only directed at him. He had no idea if she saved any of it for Rachel. 
All Toby knew was that Hannah could barely look at him without her lake water eyes narrowing even further into lasers and her nose becoming somehow pointier than it was and her lips turning white. They inched toward camp glacially because they were tired. I hate camp, Hannah said. Can't I just stay home? She'd wanted to go to sleepaway camp for the whole summer, but her bat mitzvah was in early October and she still needed June and July to learn her haftorah. You're leaving in like a week, he said. You have one more lesson left. I want to leave now, she said. Should I maybe rent you an apartment in the interim, Toby asked. Solly laughed, at least. They arrived at the 92nd Street Y, along with all the mothers in their brightly patterned leggings and their exercise shirts that said, Yoga and Vodka, or Eat, Sleep, Spin, Repeat. They had made it with maybe six minutes to spare. Toby was just about to exit the lobby when he heard his name being called. Toby, called a low, breathy woman's voice. Toby turned around to see Cindy Leffer, a good friend of Rachel's who had a daughter in Hannah's grade. She took a moment to survey him. Ah, this, he thought. He knew what was coming. The head tilted 20 degrees, the exaggerated pout, the eyebrows simultaneously raised and furrowed. Toby. I keep meaning to reach out to you, Cindy said. We haven't seen an inkling of you. She was wearing turquoise spandex leggings that had purple claw prints on the upper thighs, like a streak of purple tigers was climbing toward her crotch, trying to get to it. She wore a tank top that said spiritual gangster. How are you doing? How are the kids doing? We're okay, he said. He tried to not adjust the angle of his head to match hers, but his mirror neurons were too well-developed, and he failed. We're plugging along. It's a change, for sure. Had things been hard for long, Cindy asked. It wasn't a spur-of-the-moment thing, if that's what you're asking. Toby and Rachel had separated at the very beginning of June, just after school ended, the culmination of an almost year-long process, or maybe a process that began shortly after their wedding 14 years before. It depends whom you ask or how you look at a thing. Is a marriage that ends doomed from the start? Was the marriage over when the problems that would never get solved started? Or when they finally agreed that the problems couldn't be solved? Or when other people finally learned about it? Of course Cindy Leffer wanted information. Everyone did. The conversations were always artless and they were always the same. The first thing people wanted to know was how long things in the marriage had been bad for. Were you unhappy that night at the school gala when you were showing off your college swing dancing lessons? Were you unhappy at that bat mitzvah when you took her hand and kissed it absentmindedly during the speeches? Was I right that at parent-teacher conferences, when you stood by the coffee and she stood by the office checking her phone, you were actually fighting? How it shook people to see someone extricate themselves from a bad situation. How people so brazenly wondered aloud every private thing there was to wonder. Toby's cousin, who was prone to long, disappointed stares at her husband, asked, Had you tried therapy? His boss, whose second wife had been a nurse on the hepatology floor, asked, Were you unfaithful? The camp director at the Y, when he was explaining that his kids might be a little shaky since they'd just separated, said, Did you guys have a regular date night? These questions weren't really about him. They were questions about how perceptive people were and what they missed and who else was about to announce their divorce and whether the undercurrent of tension in their own marriages would eventually lead to its demise. Did the fight I had with my wife on our actual anniversary that was particularly vicious mean we're going to get divorced? 
Do we argue too much? Do we have enough sex? Is everyone else having more sex? Can you get divorced within six months of an absent-minded hand kiss at a bat mitzvah? How miserable is too miserable? How miserable is too miserable? One day, he would not be recently divorced, but he would never forget those questions, the way people pretended to care for him while they were really asking about themselves. He had spent the early summer in a haze, trying to find footing in this strange world where every aspect of his life was just slightly different than it used to be, and yet immensely so. He was sleeping, just alone and in a different bed. He was eating with the kids just like always. Rachel hadn't come home before eight or nine on weeknights in years. But after dinner, he dropped them off at the old apartment and walked the five blocks home to his new one. But now, in late July, as summer was rounding second base, he felt steady again, like at least he had a routine. He was coming along nicely. He was adjusting. He was cooking for one less person. He was learning to use the I instead of we to indicate availability for barbecues and cocktail parties when he was invited, which wasn't often. He was taking long walks again and learning to bat away the feeling that he should let someone know where he was. Yes, he was coming along nicely, except for conversations like this one with Cindy. He had been wallpapered to the Cindy Leffers of the world before this. He'd been a condition that came comorbid with his family. Fun, smart, successful Rachel's husband, or social Hannah's father, or cute Solly's father, or, hey, you're a doctor, right? Will you look at this bump I've had for a week? Now he was someone people wanted to talk to. His divorce had somehow given him a soul. Cindy was waiting for an answer. Her eyes were searching his face the way soap opera actors looked at each other in the seconds before commercial breaks. He knew what was expected of him. He was working on trying not to fill in this pause. He was working on letting the discomfort of the silence be the property of the person who was mining him for the dirt. His therapist, Carla, was trying to get him to learn to sit with uncomfortable feelings. He, in turn, was trying to get the people who were pumping him for information to learn to sit with their uncomfortable feelings. But also, there was no way to talk about a divorce without implying terrible things about the other person in the marriage, and he didn't want to do that. He felt a strange call for diplomacy now. School was a battleground state, and it would be so easy to get people over to his side. He knew that. He knew he could allude to Rachel's craziness, her anger, her tantrums, her unwillingness to immerse herself in her children's lives. He could say things like, I mean, I'm sure you noticed that she never came to STEM night. But he didn't want to. He didn't want to undermine Rachel's status at school out of an old sense of protectiveness that he couldn't quite shake. She was a monster, yes, but she had always been a monster, and she was still his monster, for she had not yet been claimed by another, for he was not yet legally done with her, for she still haunted him. Cindy took a step closer. He was only five foot five, and she was a full head taller than him, and skinnier than any woman needed to be. Her face was large-featured and pumped full of Botox. Her concern, which was mostly transmitted via a slow back-and-forth shaking of the head and an exaggerated protrusion of the mouth, was mitigated by the fact that her brow line was completely ossified and had been since he'd known her. This was what she looked like when she was happy, too. Todd and I were so sad to hear, she said. If there's anything we can do, we're your friends, too. Then she took another step closer, 
which was too, too many steps close for a camp lobby encounter with a married woman who was friends with his wife. His phone buzzed. He looked down. It was Tess, a woman he had plans to meet for the first time later that night. He squinted at his phone to see a close-up photograph of the fertile crescent where her thighs and her black netted panties formed a delta. That's work, Toby said to Cindy. I have a biopsy to get to. You still at the hospital, she asked? Uh, yeah, he said. As long as people get sick, supply and demand. You better get going then, Cindy said now. We'll see Hannah tomorrow night, right? She leaned over to give him a full frontal three-point hug with connection at the head, chest, and pelvis. The hug lingered for a millisecond longer than any previous physical contact he'd ever had with Cindy Leffer, which was zero. He walked away from the Y, wondering if the vibe he got off Cindy, that she wanted to comfort him, yes, but could it be to fuck him as well, was real. It couldn't be. And yet, 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 she was clearly wondering what it would be like to fuck him. No, no, it couldn't be. He thought about the way her nipples lined up so evenly and soldier-like under her stupid tank top. He was getting carried away, which is an easy thing to do when your phone is literally dripping with the lust of women who did definitely and assuredly claim to want to fuck you. Fuck you bad. Fuck you bad all night long. Each little holler he got, each little winky emoji or purple devil emoji or bra selfie or actual photographed upper region ass crack made him revisit the essential questions of his youth. Could it be that he wasn't as repulsive as he'd been led to believe by the myriad rejections of just about every single girl he'd ever made eye contact with? Could it be that he was maybe attractive? Was it not his looks or his physique, but the desperation in his attempts at a rigorous sex life in those days, or any sex life really, that rendered him something less attractive than he actually was? Or maybe now, there was something about his current situation being newly divorced and a little wounded, that had somehow made him that way. Or maybe absent mirror neurons and pheromones and other things that could not penetrate phone screens, all you had was a reflection of the intersection of your own horniness and your own availability. And the minute someone else's horniness and availability matched up with yours, voila, and kaboom. He didn't like to think that, that sex was no longer about attraction, but he couldn't pretend it wasn't a possibility. He was a scientist after all. He'd met Rachel when he was a first year in medical school. He thought about that time nearly constantly now. He thought of the decisions he'd made and whether he could have seen the warning signs. Her at that library party, her eyes flashing sex, her hair the same shape it would continue to be forever. How his eyes filled at the sight of the gleam of her geometry hair. How the blue of her eyes was both cold and hot. How the cupid's bow beneath her nose was a dewdrop mountain to be climbed how it mirrored the cleft in her chin with the kind of symmetry that science said initiated male sexual imperative and created visual gratification and feelings of well-being, how the sharpness of her face seemed like a correction to the Semitic girls he was bred to want, how he was made dizzy, how he utterly dissolved in lust by the way she stuck a hip out when she was trying to decide something, how after knowing him just four weeks, she came with him to California to his grandmother's funeral, how she sat in the back and looked sad for him and came to the house afterward and helped put all the catered food on trays. The way she undressed him. No, he shouldn't be thinking about that now. 
thinking about that would be detrimental to his healing. The point was that she had wanted him. The point was that someone wanted Toby Fleischman. He'd only had one real girlfriend before. And other than that, just some drunk girls he had rolled around on the floor with at parties. He had sex with just two women before Rachel. But then college was over, and the girls in med school were almost all attached to some guy from before. And there was Rachel, who didn't look at him like he was too short or too pathetic, even though he was, he was. He looked across the room to her at that party, and she looked back at him and smiled. So much time had passed since then, and yet that was Rachel for him. He had spent so many years in the service of trying to relocate that Rachel within the Rachel that she kept proving herself to be. But even now, it was that version of Rachel that was the first that ever came to mind when he thought of her. He felt he would be doing worlds better if it weren't. Kathy's book, Fleischman is in Trouble, is out now. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. Also, we are planning an episode about couples and money, and we want to hear from you. How do you and your partner deal with money? Are you just Venmoing the same $11 back and forth forever or what? Whatever you're doing, how did you figure it out? And how open are you with each other? Give us a call and let us know. We're at 920-368-3341. Again, that's 920-368-3341. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie and Olivia Knapp. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing is by Emma Munger. Our music is by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. Our theme song is Play It Right by Sylvanesso. That's Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra Sauzermonic. Special thanks this week to Jen Gann and Carrie Neal. And if you like the show, please tell some friends to listen to. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut. 